We have a very special program for you today. It relates to the cave pictured here that is located in the Holy Land on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea near a place called Qumran. It is where the first discovery of Dead Sea Scrolls was made in the mid-1940s by a Bedouin sheepherder. In subsequent years other scrolls were discovered including one inscribed on copper. Some believe that copper scroll reveals the hiding places of many of the temple treasures that were hidden before the temple was destroyed either by the Babylonians or later by the Romans. For an interview with the world's greatest expert on this scroll, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. My colleague Nathan Jones and I have a very special guest today. He is Jim Barfield, a former Oklahoma firefighter and highly respected arson investigator. I got interested in Jim when a person gave me a copy of this book, The Copper Scroll Project by Shelley Neese. I found it to be absolutely mesmerizing and uh, it all about archaeological explorations in Israel concerning the Copper Scroll. And the central figure in the book Jim Barfield. So, Jim, we're glad to have you with us today, and I want to begin with a very obvious question, and that question is, how in the world did an arson <laughs> investigator from Oklahoma get involved with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and one in particular, the Copper Scroll, and in fact become probably the world's greatest expert on that scroll? Well, all the firefighters are archaeologists in Oklahoma. <laughs> well, that's true. You're, you're digging through ashes. We're always digging through ashes and looking for stuff. I, you know what it was? It was my Bible study. I came to the Lord in, uh, when I was 35 years old, and I'd been on the fire department about five years. And I just, when I started, I started my religious life and believing in Yeshua, Jesus, I just fell in love with it. And that's what got me on the path. I studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, then I began to study the Copper Scroll. And when I, when I started studying the Copper Scroll, I realized uh, through another gentleman, uh, his name was Vendel Jones, he told me that the Copper Scroll had more prophecy in it than all of the others put together. Now, Vendel was a character. <laughs> Wonderful guy, but he was a character. And I, I listened to him. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And then one night in December 2006, it was during Hanukkah, I realized within five minutes I knew how to understand the Copper Scroll. Within 20 minutes I had figured out the first five locations of the Copper Scroll. And now you got to understand this scroll was found in 1952. And no one's figured out how to understand it. Yeah, so but for, I got it. For the benefit of our viewers let me just make clear that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the mid 40s. Yes. And uh, this was found in 1952. And when you said locations, what you're talking about is that this copper scroll seems to be a scroll that is telling about where certain treasures are buried, correct? Yes. They are, uh, there are some out there who would argue with me, but I don't care. These are first temple treasures, 
and there, there are about 57 locations according to the research that I've done. Well, now let me, let me just stop you there and ask you a question. Uh, in the reading that I've done on this, uh, most of the people seem to believe that these treasures came either from the Second Temple or they came before the Bar Kokhba revolt or during it. Mm -hmm. Why do you put it in the first the first temple that puts it way back there. Oh, it does. But uh, as an investigator, you got to listen to everybody. Okay. You got to get all your information gathered. So, what in. evidence? Puts the it there? evidence was about four different manuscripts from the time uh, of um, the actual events, which were a Jeremiah time frame. There's four different documents that say that it was during the Jeremiah period, and it was during the uh, exile into Babylon. What was during then? The, uh, when, whenever the men at Qumran buried the treasures there or in the ruins. Does it ever mention specifically a copper scroll? It does indeed. Oh, is that right? Yeah. They, and it was a Emek HaMelech, which means Valley of the King, written in the 1600s. And the gentleman said that it was, uh, it was all this information was put on a copper plate, luach nehoshet, which means copper plate yes. in Hebrew. What's so odd about, we're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were papyrus in jars, but you're saying this is a scroll made out of metal, is, is that rare? Very rare. Very rare. Okay. Very rare. Not only in the, copper, in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, but anywhere. And what does it indicate to you that it was done on metal? Why it was done? Oh, they wanted it to last for millennium. That's that's why they, they want it to last for a lost. long time, and they uh, didn't really lose that information. So whatever's on it is super important. Oh, it is. Okay. Oh gosh, yeah. They uh, they they did it backwards too. They had to write this thing backwards and under pressure. Wrote it backwards. What do you mean? Meaning they had to write Hebrew left uh, right to left. Okay. They had to write it right, uh, left to right because. They were impressing it into the copper so that when oh, you yeah. flip it over. What did they use? Like a mallet and a. Yeah, that's what I believe. A little mallet and a, a stylus and just tapped it in there. And you can see where they made mistakes. The scroll was in two parts rolled up very tightly. Yes. How in the world did they ever get it unrolled without destroying it? Actually, it was in three parts. Yeah, there was three different sheets of copper, and they couldn't get it to unroll because it was so fragile. It was green, of course, from the patina, and the years had rotted away a small portion of it. But they had to take the copper scroll, they took it to Manchester, England, and a gentleman there used an old dental tool. It was one of those, uh, like they use nowadays, to reach the drill down in your oh, mouth. Yeah, and drilled across. Well, this was, these were pulleys and ropes and, you know. They cut it into that. strips. And they cut it into strips about so wide yeah. so that <clears throat> they could take each one off, lay it to the side. And when you lay it all out, what size is it? Uh, if you put it end to end, the whole thing is seven feet long, a little over seven feet long and one foot wide. Wow. Wow. And it's got some amazing information on it. Who were the guys that made it? I, well, I'll tell you what, I can tell you what, two of them, who they were, and you'll know who they are. Okay. Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets. Okay, oh. the post-exilic prophets came yes, back from uh, Babylon and helped restore. Yes, that's it, exactly. And I temple. believe they were young boys when they broke this copper scroll. Because it okay. looks like they used crayons on it in some places. Well, now, knowing what I do about Israel and about particularly archaeologists and mm -hmm. The control of archaeology on that land. I would imagine that when you showed up over there, they would completely dismiss you as nothing in the world but a crazy <laughs> treasure hunter. Uh, exactly. They probably get a lot of those too. How they did you do. get past uh, that, a lot of them? Well, that barrier. I, I met a lady in Lawton, Oklahoma, 
She was uh, number two in charge of the uh, Comanche Nation College. A little Comanche lady, wonderful lady. She knew the head of the Antiquities Authority. She called him up and said, you need to listen to this guy. Well, that had to be a God incident. It was. There's no, there's no doubt about it. And uh, two weeks later, I'm in Israel. But even so, I'm sure they, they were looking at you like, you know. He did. Yeah. <laughs> he did. We sat down, I sat down to show it to him. And I laid it on the table in front of him. And he's, you got to picture this. When I told him it was a copper scroll, he just went. <sighs> he was a gentleman, but he was frustrated. And I began to show him. I showed him first location, he leaned forward. Second, he got up a little further. <laughs> Third, he pulled the book up close to him. And the fourth one, he stopped me. He said, Mr. Barfield, stop. He reaches in his phone, uh, for his phone in his briefcase, yeah. pulls it out, and he calls back to the office and sets up a meeting with the two top guys over the West Bank. Okay. Yuval Peleg and Yitzhak Magan. They met me about four days later at the Rockefeller Museum, and they were, they were interested. Okay, now it mentions in the book here that you broke the code of this thing. Mm -hmm. What did that mean? Really, it's, breaking the code is nothing more than I learned how to understand it. Okay, so it had already been translated, in fact, several translations. Was, there's lots of translations yeah, of it. Yeah. Did you do your own translation? It, mine's really not a translation because you know how I figured it out? Strong's Concordance. Oh. I just took the Hebrew words out of the Strong's yeah. Concordance, and it, when I found it on the copper scroll, I got the meaning and I wrote it down. Got the meaning, wrote it down, until I formed a complete okay, sentence. Okay, so they'd had this thing, they'd had the translation, but what, what was your breakthrough? What was it that, that caught their attention when you, when you came with it? Oh, when they saw my research. All right. I'm telling you, by the time you get to the fourth location, every single one of the major people in Israel that saw my research, when I get to the fourth location, they just go, oh my gosh. Well, have this they is not so taken simple. these locations seriously? They did, but you know what they thought? I followed the instructions. And my wife laughs at me every Men time I tell this story. Men don't often do that. Because I never follow the instructions. <laughs> you give me a swing set, I don't need instructions. No. There's always and some parts left what, over too. Yeah, a lot of parts. But in this case, I followed the instructions. It said, yeah. under the ruins in the Valley of Accor. Okay. I said, okay, I'll find a set of ruins. I know where the Valley of Accor is at. And I knew Qumran because I've been studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, now tell us about how the breakthrough with you that came when you were studying in a map of Jerusalem and how you applied that to yeah. Qumran. That was, that, was that, was that was a God day. Because I, I, I was looking for a map of Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah. Okay. Because I needed more information because I knew that was the period. Well, when I found the map, and I was online, of course, that's where you find everything. I found the map okay. and I looked at the thing and I thought, why did they draw Qumran upside down? <laughs> and why do they have the Jerusalem written underneath it? So you saw that immediately. And I immediately. And I thought, oh my goodness. So I got a picture of Qumran and I rotated it 180 degrees and they were a match. Wow. So they laid out. The Essenes who founded it laid out Qumran yes. to look like Jerusalem. To look like Jerusalem. And I'm telling you now, they weren't just the scenes. As a matter of fact, they never were called the scenes back then. The way, right? The way, the, way. Uh, the poor, the sons of light. You've heard these names before? Yeah. 
Well, that's what, that's what they called themselves, and those men were the prophets. I'm telling you, they were the prophets of Israel. The biblical prophets? Yes, okay. the biblical prophets of Israel. They would go out there in the desert. No, and they lived in the desert. Where did all the prophets come from whenever they were going to Jerusalem to chew out the priesthood there? The well, wilderness. Were you finally Israel. able to convince the, the, the authorities there in Israel that you weren't just treasure hunters? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Once they saw my research, they realized that, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. Now, when we were having dinner together, uh, I asked you, why in the world is there so much reluctance on the part of the Israelis to do the digs and find these treasures? And you pointed out something to me that's very interesting. It's really not reluctance. It's protection of the items. There, the Oslo Accords, there's stipulations in there. Something's found in the West Bank. There's a debate who, who it's going to belong to. Uh, yeah. Palestinians. Okay. These are temple or, treasures, and they could go to the Palestinians, they could go to the Jordanians, they could go to the Egyptians. Egyptians, yeah, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. So they I got a God that says otherwise. So they prefer that's to not leave it you know, in the ground yeah. until the right time. Now, did I hear that even metal detectors are illegal when you go out? And oh my goodness, underneath? yeah. You don't want to take a metal detector over there. Because I saw a that. video of you actually going around with one, so I was wondering how you got one and could prove that these treasures were under the dirt. Oh, what happened was uh, I was asked to go to New York City to meet a gentleman by the name of Moshe Faglin. Okay. Moshe Faglin immediately believed in what I was doing. He saw I was showing him my research, got to the fourth one, and he was just, why are you not guy. digging? That's what he said. Why are you not digging? I said, I can't. Your government is stopping me. And he said, what? He said, when are you going to be in Israel again? I said, one month. He said, call me. We'll go do it. He said, I'll do it under my he authority. He's a member of parliament. Yeah, okay. deputy speaker of the Knesset. He so said, he I'll had do immunity. It. He had immunity from any arrest. And there's a story okay. behind that. But <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about your search for these things. Okay? okay. All right. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy and our interview with Jim Barfield, an arson investigator from Oklahoma who became interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls and ended up becoming one of the world's foremost experts on the mysterious copper scroll called that because it is the only one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that is inscribed on copper. Well, Jim, please tell us. I want to know, how did your journey on this begin? It began in February 2007. Okay. After I'd figured out I knew how to understand the Copper Scroll, I wanted to go to Jerusalem or into Israel and check out my, my theories. And uh, with, we hopped on a jet with a backpack each, me and my wife, and we wound up in the uh, Jaffa Gate Hostel okay. the first night. Oh, boy. <laughs> Guys, that was an experience, yeah, an adventure was, yeah. all unto itself. As a fire, uh, fire marshal, court enforcement is non-existent <laughs> in the old city. You must I, have a really good wife. Oh, she <laughs> is wonderful. She yeah. has been with me for 41 years, and wow. she is incredibly supportive of this project. So, yeah, and that's, how, that's when it started. It was uh, okay. February 2000, uh, 2007. And you were there to do what? To check my research against the actual ruins of Qumran. Okay, so you and, did go to Qumran. Oh yeah, oh gosh, yeah. I'd have mm -hmm. walked there if I had to. <laughs> it's but, hot, uh, very hot. Well, at the time it was pretty cool. Really? February, yeah. Okay, that so, was smart. <coughs> excuse okay. me. We got there. I pulled out my research, and I only, at that time I only had about twelve of them figured out, and every one of them. 
the burial, uh, sites, the burial sites. Thank you. The burial sites of the Copper Scroll. The Copper Scroll lists twelve. No, they, the Copper Scroll lists fifty-seven, but I'd only had twelve of them figured out. Okay. So I'm over there looking, and all of them matched up with the, the features and the buildings of Qumran. Perfectly. I saw a map where it actually you laid out the twelve, and it was was it in a straight line? The first three were in okay. a perfectly straight line with the cave, the most important location of all, the cave where some very important biblical items are buried. Now you started digging in that cave, right? We did. Okay. We did in two thousand and nine. We started digging. What happened? We got. We were planned to go down two meters. Okay. We went down about three feet. And uh, the archaeologists got a phone call. Now you got to picture this. Uh, they were doing all this on their money. They liked my research so much that they did it. They provided the excavators, the everything. And all I had to do was point. Must dig here, dig here, let's dig here. Wow. And they were digging at the most important place. And they got a phone call, and everything stopped. He went off by himself. He looked around. I could tell his countenance changed. He was real excited and you know joyful. They walked off. He came back. He said, "Well, let's dig a little bit more, and this is good enough." I said, "I said you've all good enough. We only went three feet. You said we're going to go at least six feet, two meters." And he said, "Well, this is deep enough." We got. He got a phone call, and I'd rather not say who it was. But there was a group here in the United States who were angry about, about a fireman from Lawton, Oklahoma, digging at Qumran when they couldn't get a permit to, you know. So these were American archaeologists? Well, yeah. Yeah, they were American archaeologists. So rather they than pursue archaeology, they'd rather shut you down? Yeah, because I, I don't have a PhD. You have to understand the world of archaeology. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The, 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 I read I all the Peabody books. I decided a long time ago that there's yeah. nobody in the world meaner than, uh, than archaeologists. <laughs> with the way they go at each other, <laughs> yeah. attack each other, yeah. jealousies, incredible, incredible jealousies. Jealousy. It's You're just unbelievable. Right. And they did. They shut it down. Well, did they go back and dig it up themselves? No. It's still? No. It's still everything is exactly as we left it in 2009. Wow. Hmm. Uh, they just, uh, they want to protect this stuff. It's uh, under the Oslo Accords, you know, anything found could be divided up between the Israelis or between the, and the Israelis don't want that. They want oh, no, these yeah. things to remain intact. This is their, this is their history. It comes from the heart of their history. Well, what kind of treasures are we talking about? You said there's 50, how many again? Seven. 57 treasures. Are we talking like the Ark of the Covenant? What are, what are we talking about? Well, let's talk about the ones that are in, within the ruins. There's a, one of them that shows 900 talents of gold. You know how much that is in today's money? <laughs> a talent was a year's salary, wasn't it? Uh, a talent, no, it's, that's way more than, a oh, talent yeah. is way more. It's, oh, okay. uh, each talent is worth a million dollars minimum. Wow. Yeah. In today's money. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and they, uh, the, the actual gold that's buried there, if it's 75 pounds like we think it is, you're talking uh, $1 billion minimum. Buried in, in just one location. In one location. And then remember, what are, what are some of the other objects? <clears throat> you ever heard of the ifod? The, the high in, priest war, right? Yeah, the breastplate. Oh, yeah. In that cave that I was telling you about. Location number one, number two, and number three, remember in a straight line. Well, that cave and number location number three, it says that that ephod is in that cave. And not only that, when you go to the last five of the Copper Scroll, now listen to this the last five 
53, 54, 55, 56, 57 is also the cave. And they said the treasures of the house, the wealth of the house is in that cave. What house do you think they're talking about? Temple. The Beit HaMikdash, the house, the holy place is, is inside of that cave. Well, how come the Temple Institute who wants to rebuild and make the third temple not want that ephod? Oh, they do. Yeah, okay. they want they're, it not, they're even kept bad. from it. Okay. And matter of fact, I I try to communicate with them and some others in Israel uh, because those items have got to be protected, and those Jewish guys, those rabbis, they want to protect it with all their heart. They want to protect these things. Well, I'm curious. There's there's one part that's missing for me. If these are first temple artifacts, why weren't they not dug up and put in the second temple? A uh, very good reason. Uh, the, the second temple was good. They, actually, the second temple was Zerubbabel's temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Third temple was Herod's temple. They were not going to dig them up until the heart of Israel was right. Uh, I'm telling you, they, they want to make sure that these things are used properly. Uh, by the same token, they did not have the Ark of the Covenant in the second temple. No, mm-hmm. they did not have it in the Second Temple. Because it was under Roman control during most of that time, and they, they didn't want to... No. They, yeah, the Romans, uh, the high priest at the time of Jesus, he was a, he was a plant. He, was a, he yeah. bought and paid for a position mm-hmm. uh, at Edomite. They don't want... And it's supposed to be Levites from the, the, the tribe of Aaron. You know, Aaronic blessings, that sort of thing. Well, that's who was supposed to be in charge, but it wasn't. Now, you talked about your original excavation there and how it was interrupted, but you've done things since then. Tell us yeah. about the scans you, you did. 2014, a gentleman by the name of Moshe Faglin meets me at Qumran. Okay, he is a member of the Knesset. The he parliament. was a member of the Knesset. Yeah. He was the deputy speaker of the Knesset, which is the parliament yeah. for Israel. So, when, it, when can I say Knesset, think parliament. He. Uh, he uh, talked to me, and he planned to go out there to Qumran with me, and he did. A month later, I'm getting out of my car. He's getting out of his car. He's got a kind of a limousine with his entourage with him, and we start walking up to Qumran to do the scan. And I asked him, I said, are you sure this is okay? He said, no. No. Okay. <laughs> and I looked at my buddy Chris Knight. and He has immunity, though. Oh, yeah. And I you said, don't have it. I, yeah. You know what he told me? I said, I said, well, do you have an attorney? He said, yes, I've got an attorney. I said, will he protect me? He said, no. <laughs> I said, on I'm own. on my own here. <laughs> so my wife and my youngest son stayed in the parking lot. Okay. I said, you got to get me out of jail if this happens. So you, you're doing all these scans while there's tourists running around? Oh, at yeah, the same tourists time? and the, okay. the guard at Qumran came up to us and he was saying, what are you doing? And Moshe said, let me handle it. So he starts talking to him in Hebrew and the guy's listening, he calls down to the front desk. Yeah, to the main guy. But I knew that the director of Qumran, he and I were buds. And he said, leave him alone. Okay. So we got to scan. And we scanned four locations. And all four locations showed massive quantities of non-ferrous metals, meaning brass, copper, silver, massive quantities. And you were using a pretty powerful scan, weren't you? Yeah, the uh, detector penetrates down to 50 feet minimum. That's amazing because when you go to Quran and it, it's by the Dead Sea, so there's nothing. It's just empty. And to think that all these treasures potentially are under all that useless sand and tourism. And under the feet of hundreds and hundreds of tourists just about every day. Wow. And they have no clue. Well, what is next on your agenda? Next thing is uh, we're waiting on the uh, election to get over with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've got with Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu, 
just a couple of days ago, the, they handed over the process for uh, structuring the government to Benny Gantz. As of November 2019. Yeah, Netan, Netanyahu couldn't do it. He couldn't get it pulled together, which I was pulling for him because mm -hmm. of two reasons. One, Moshe Fagelin was now and I would, be, would have been in a high position within the parliament, within the Knesset. And uh, Netanyahu had just announced that he was going to annex the Jordan Valley uh, in a portion oh, of land. That's along the way. And it's even more important, well, I don't know if it's more important, but. They don't have control over the land. And can do yeah, because Qumran Plus sits whatever there. comes out of the ground. That's yes. it, because of the Oslo Accords. Now it's all Israel and it surrounds Qumran. Perfect timing. Because if we get to do an excavation now, no one can say, well, that's ours. I bet you they're going to, but they can't say this is ours because then it's under Israeli control. That's what our holdup is right now. How have you been able to finance all this? Uh, we initially, we asked for funding and we got a nice, just exactly what we needed. And then from, there from was... From whom? The government of Israel or what? No. From... Uh, People like us. Oh, donors. Just donors, just guys. Yeah. Grandmas and grandpas and uh, they, that's how we got our funding. But I didn't, I don't like to ask for money. And this gentleman, I'm not going to say his name, but uh, he's a rancher. And he told me, he said, Jim, he said, whatever you need, you let me know. He said, we'll take care of it. That's how we funded this. Well, you certainly have been very frugal if you're going over there and staying in hostels. Hostels, and places like <laughs> uh, yeah, we stayed in, in Zion, Zion uh, In fact, Square. I think you told me that uh, to date uh, you've only spent like $150,000. Yeah, there may be plus or minus $20,000. Yeah. But wow. yeah, it, we, we've been eating on uh, Ben Yehuda Street, <laughs> eating <laughs> falafels you know, out in the open. Not living on ramen noodles, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, we didn't have any here. We would have been eating on them. <laughs> and we had people, with, we, we've been blessed. People have given us the keys to their homes wow. and allowed us to stay in Israel with their, and they were beautiful homes, just wonderful people. And that's a blessing for me. Well, God. it sounds like the Lord has been blessing you. Very much so. Okay. Well, in. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll tell people how to get in touch with you, okay? Okay. Jim, it's been a very fascinating interview. Thank you so much. I'm sure people want to know more about what you're doing and how they can get in touch with you. So if you could look into that camera there and let them know how they can get in contact with I you. I will. Thank you. Okay. If, if you do want to get in contact with me, it's best way is to go through my website, the Copper Scroll Project. Put that in any search engine and we will be at the top of that search engine. Uh, you'll find information about the uh, Copper Scroll. You'll find out some of the information, a few details, but that's, uh, we're trying to keep that mostly secret for right now. Okay, and uh, can they contact you through the website? Yes, if they, like if they wanted me to come do, do some speaking, they could contact me through the website and I'll be happy to do that. Well, folks, that's our program for this week and I hope it has been a blessing to you and I hope the Lord willing you'll be back with us next week. Till then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. The Bible is literally filled with prophecies about the Jewish people past, present, and future. And in fact, the Jewish people are the focus of end-time Bible prophecy. Folks, I've spent the past 40 years studying these remarkable prophecies and their fulfillments, and I have put together a summary of them in a new book of mine that is titled, 
Israel in Bible prophecy, past, present, and future. The incredible story of Israel in Bible prophecy is proof positive of the existence of God and that the Bible is the Word of God. The first section of the book takes a look at four prophecies that were fulfilled before the beginning of the 20th century. The second section features seven prophecies that were fulfilled in whole or in part during the 20th century. The final section of the book takes a look at the prophecies concerning the future of Israel, showing how the suffering of the Jewish people in the Great Tribulation will lead to their national repentance and salvation. Finally, there is an epilogue in which I explain how all this is relevant to Christians in the 21st century. The book runs 256 pages in length, and it can be yours for a donation of $20 or more, including the cost of shipping. To order a copy, either call our office at the number you see on the screen, or place your order through our website at lambline.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 